Hello, everybody. Welcome to Secure Talk. My name is Mark Schreiner, and I'll be your host for this episode of Secure Talk. Today, we're going to be talking to Dr. Shira Brzez, who is the CEO and co-founder of Redefine, the first end-to-end security tech for DeFi investors. We're going to talk about to Shira about the current state of crypto security and how companies can mitigate DeFi risk and other things. But before we do that, let's say hi to Shira. Hey, Shira, how are you today? Hi, Mark. I'm good. Thank you for having me. Hey, my pleasure. Whereabouts are you located? I'm in Tel Aviv, Israel. Tel Aviv. How is the weather in Tel Aviv this time of the year? It's pretty hot. It's going to get even worse. So, yeah. How do you define pretty hot? And you can you can do Celsius or centigrade. Yeah. I mean, I don't even know what's today, but we're going to be high 30s for a while. And then it's going to hit like really high later on. That like, is pretty hot. So do you... I'm just going to get like 100. Your, your degree. Yeah, yeah, my art degrees. <laughs> I think we're the, there's only two countries in the world that use Fahrenheit. I think it's us in Burma or something like that. I don't know. But hey, I got to ask you, I know that there are a lot of cybersecurity related companies in Israel. And from what I understand, partially that's because of the military, but there's also a lot of science programs there. What about DeFi and crypto? Are there also a lot of, of, of kind of blockchain DeFi crypto startups in Israel as well? Yeah. So first of all, you're absolutely right. Cyber is one of the strengths of the Israeli startup and not just startups, of just even companies in terms of the industry. And it is indeed because of the background that many people have in working for the government and working, just serving in the army and the technology units and stuff. I have similar background myself, so I'm part of this community. So you see that a lot. However, crypto is different, right? So I think there are more and more companies in crypto. This unique situation of crypto and cyber has become now very interesting in Israel. When we started, my co-founder and I actually have are in a very in a very unusual situation where we have both background in cybersecurity and in crypto. So mm-hmm. being crypto native, but also having cybersecurity experience, that's actually what got us to start really fine. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you more about it actually. It's interesting. But so we found ourselves in this very unique position and we started really fine. And I kept asking for maybe 10 months into it, I kept asking, what, what is going on? Why are we the only people working on that? Cause it seemed to me like everybody should be doing this in Israel. And maybe I spoke too soon because now there are like 20 companies <laughs> trying to do either similar things or other things in the, in the industry. And I'm joking because it's not a bad thing. I think eventually it's going to be really a whole ecosystem and that's the right solution because there's not going to be one company that is going to solve this. I think it's going to be very similar to what we see in traditional cybersecurity where you really have lots of solutions, some defending your desktop and someone is on your internet and somebody is protecting your cloud and it's all needed and it's all part of eventually securing a space. So I think actually even what we see today, I think we're going to see more and more because Israelis have this cybersecurity strength. I think mm. the more the more crypto will recover because right now we're kind of like in this middle of end, hopefully of this crypto winter. I think when we go back to crypto summer, more companies are going to be starting in Israel and even even more. I think the big cybersecurities in Israel, the big cybersecurity companies in Israel are not in the space yet. I think their their turn will come to maybe within two or three years. 
But I think they'll realize too that this is a very interesting space that is very relevant to them. Well, let me let me ask you, compared to traditional cybersecurity, where in the corporate environment you're trying to secure the company's devices, data, assets, IT assets, etc. What's different between traditional cybersecurity and then cybersecurity in the crypto space? And maybe you can talk a little bit about like what what are DeFi attacks, for example? Yeah. So. It is a new world, right? If you just know cybersecurity and you'll come, suddenly you'll show up in crypto, you'll you'll be clueless. You don't know what to do. It takes time. You'll have to learn crypto and you'll have to learn Web3 and you'll have to learn DeFi specifically, right? So I think what we see today in terms of the attacks is this unique situation where you, you have Web2 attacks. Those are right. classic attacks that if you come from cybersecurity background, you'll identify them immediately and you also know what to do. But there are Web3 attacks. Those are the new attacks that we see in DeFi. You see vulnerabilities in smart contracts. So if you have a classic cybersecurity background, you understand what a vulnerability is. You understand what the difference is between a vulnerability and an exploit and how to deal with those things and how to look for mostly the preparation towards an attack. But you have to learn. It's like a new language, right? These are these are different types of attacks. So I feel there's a lot of advantage to people who have this cybersecurity background, but they need to catch up on everything else that has to do with crypto. And this is interesting because I see a lot of companies that are either coming from solid cybersecurity background, but have no, no understanding of crypto and they're trying to catch up on the crypto side. And then I see other companies, not in Israel, but other usually either Americans or actually from other regions as well in the world where they're very crypto native, very strong in crypto, but they're trying to catch up on what cybersecurity is. And that's even harder, I think, to, to catch up on. And so I think this is what we felt at Redefine is very unique in that sense, because we just happen to come from both worlds at the same time. And suddenly those two worlds kind of connected for us. So when we started Redefine, to be honest, this was not our plan. We had an idea on something we wanted to build on DeFi. We were just out of working for the Israeli government for over a decade, my, my co-founder and I. We've been doing cybersecurity and vulnerabilities and other things that had to do with cyber attacks for many, many years. And then in our most recent position there, we actually started together the FinTech Labs and had to do with blockchain analytics. So for three years, we've been doing building tools for the tracking of terror funding on the blockchain for the Israeli government. Super exciting, super interesting, very useful also, was adopted by the intelligence community afterwards. And this was a point where we decided we want to do crypto full-time because at this point I was expected to, like I usually did in my career, start a new project for another three years doing a different technology, something different, which usually I loved, right? I enjoyed the fact that I kept doing different things. But once you start crypto, it's very hard. Like professionally, I was in crypto early on. I got in uh, when Bitcoins were $200 each. So I bought Bitcoins 2013. I was into the ideology. And alone, my co-founder was mining Ethereum in his, in his living room 2015. So we've been in crypto for a while, but professionally speaking, we've been in crypto for the first time in this project. And so after that, it was, it was too late to, to go back, right? And we said, okay, that's it. We want to do crypto full time and we quit our jobs and, and we wanted to start something on, on crypto. And by the way, we were going to build something else. We were going to build something on DeFi. That was, we had an idea. We still have it actually. Maybe one day we'll get it and maybe it's not going to be relevant anymore and that's fine. But as soon as we were ready to build, we just looked around us at the space and we were like, you can't build here. There's no security whatsoever. And there's so much risk and there's so many attacks. And I think all the other builders, because they don't share the same background, they didn't see it. They didn't see all those risks. They were excited about building. So they just went ahead and had it built and it's fine. But we just couldn't. We couldn't do it. 
And I also kind of felt like this is almost a vocation, right? We are in this unique position where we actually can do something about it. And so this is how Redefine came about to be what it is actually today. Okay. Well, I mean, you mentioned the different types of techs. You said Web 2.0 and Web 3.0, but you didn't really give me a specific use case. Could you, again, give greater details about what are the types of attacks that you have to defend against in the DeFi space versus traditional cybersecurity? Yeah, absolutely. So I'll give you a few examples. If you, you know, just if, let's say you're a scammer, right? You build a website now that is an attack. It's a scam. You use some phishing methods. Maybe you write emails to people. Maybe you even get personal information and kind of pretend to be someone they know, whatever. But you are seducing people to get to your website or to click on something that would then eventually cause them to reveal information. Maybe specifically there you have now their address of their wallet, and maybe you can even get them to give you their code, their password, right? So I've seen it all the time. By the way, I see sometimes it myself when I kind of go to places and randomly I happen to go to the wrong website because they're mm-hmm. pushing those websites. And then it asked me for my seed phrase. My seed phrase, I mean, you never give. Those are 12 words that hold your money and you're not supposed to give it to anybody, right? And so for me, it's very easy. Immediately, I'm like, okay, why are they asking for my seed? Clearly, this is the wrong website and this is a scam. But people fall for those things all the time. These are classic web two attacks. There's nothing that had to do with crypto here. Basically, they're using traditional cybersecurity, building a website, you know, using different ways to get to you. And, you know, they're getting information out of you. So yes, they will steal your crypto money, but this is not a web three attack. On the other hand, if you look at, for example, in web three, uh, let's say on DeFi, somebody has a, puts a protocol, like a smart contract that is now has the offering of something. And maybe this protocol And I've seen, this is a good example. I've seen it too. So this protocol has been audited by a reputable company. So when you interact with it, you feel safe, you feel secured. But the the person who started this protocol could be malicious. We've I've seen a case where he actually literally gave the contract for auditing for a company. So you could Mm -hmm. say, okay, this is kind of like a kosher certificate, right? Because somebody audited the code. This shows like you're an honest player. If you gave your code for auditing, you opened it as because it's verified. But eventually... When he put the code on the blockchain, they changed something last minute and they added something that was actually malicious. This is part of the smart contract. This is already Web3. And by the way, you don't have to be a malicious trader actor. You could also be a decent actor that is under attack. But now let's describe an attack that is a Web3 attack. If I'm an attacker, a Web3 attacker, I would read the contracts. Most of them are verified and open for everybody to read. And I'm looking for vulnerabilities in the code. If I find the vulnerability within the smart contract code, so anything that can let me now play something different, I can find a way to kind of outsmart the smart contract and do something that was not the intention of the person who put the code there. This is an attack on the code. You have to know Solidity or whatever language within Web3 that this was written in. You have to do to send the right transaction on Web3 to kind of get this vulnerability to become something that you can actually operate. And this is a Web3 attack, right? This is not something that exists on Web2. It's different. If you want to identify it, if you want to stop it, if you want to mitigate it, you have to know Web3 really well in order to do all those things. Yeah, I mean, to me, it sounds kind of maybe more like application security where you could have some malicious code in the application. I'm talking about in traditional cybersecurity space. Is is there anything different other than the fact that there could be some some instructions in the contract that are malicious. Is that correct in terms of drawing a parallel there? 
It's actually correct, except that in DeFi, you have like a whole new world. So normally, if you're a Web2 security company, or a Web2 company, I'm sorry, first of all, you won't necessarily open your code. It's not going to be open for anybody. If someone wants to attack you or violate something, they will need to get access to the code first. This is not an easy thing. Web3, it's all open. So it's really like a market for attackers saying, here are all our codes. Come and see if there's something you can find. And I always give this example. It's like in a heist movie, the first half of the movie is always about how to get the information, right? Mm. How many cameras are there? Who's the guard? What are the cameras watching exactly? What kind of safe there is? There's a lot of work to get all those things before you can start building your plan on how to you know, how to break in the bank. In DeFi, you kind of skip that half of the movie. You give everybody all the information and you just say, okay, let's let's see. There are also benefits to that, right? Because a lot of eyes, a lot of sets of eyes on the code is going to make it stronger and helpful. And there's a whole community that is looking through and reading and correcting others. So it's also helpful in that sense. It's a tricky situation to decide what's better. and But it's part of DeFi. It's part of everything being open. So I'm not against it, not at all. But in DeFi, it's also, it can be very complicated because it's also what we call money Legos, right? So many platforms are using other platforms right. to do things. You can sometimes be, you're very secured. Someone else is very secure. The combination of you two now is now an opening to an attack. So I'll give you an, an interesting example. I've seen an attack, also a very, very interesting one, when there's a protocol who's giving, who's lending money, right? You can go and borrow money. And they allow what we call flash loan attacks, a flash loan, sorry. So a flash loan is you can borrow the money for one block. It could be, let's say, 10 seconds. As long as you return it on the same block, you don't need to have any guarantees. You don't need to have any. In in real life, if you want to borrow money, you need to have some guarantees. You have to have uh, some deposits maybe or something, right, in order for someone to give you a loan. But if you're taking money for one block, that means when you send the transaction, the transaction itself on the same block is going to be, I'm borrowing the money, I'm doing this, 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 and that, and then I'm giving you back the money plus interest. So all the code goes at once. And so there's there's a zero risk that you're not going to return the money. If there's a zero risk, then there's no guarantees needed. So you can come in, right, and ask, you can borrow a million dollars for 12 seconds, you can borrow a hundred million dollars for 12 seconds. It depends what the protocol allows. So we've seen attacks that are interesting, people borrowing huge amounts of money, they do send the code that they're returning everything. But then when the question is, how much am I supposed to return? Right? It's been 10 seconds. I borrowed a certain kind of token or whatever. What is the value now? How much do I need to pay back and what the interest would be? And then this protocol is using some proxies or actually we call them oracles, right? It's using oracles to determine what would be the right rate, right? For you to return the loan. So an attack, for example, that I, I enjoyed investigating because it was very sophisticated was such protocol that the mistake they made was that they only looked at two oracles. Okay. So for them to decide how much you're going to be, be paying back, they didn't check in lots of places. They checked in two exchanges at the same time simultaneously and then did an average for that two numbers. So someone read the code, understood the process and came up with this really brilliant idea. He borrowed a lot of money very, very fast, but maybe I don't know, $600 million or something like that. Then use that money to put into those two exchanges. And by putting so much money at the same time, selling all those tokens, he actually influenced the price, right? Because suddenly they swap. They have a feeling, they're blind to everybody else. So they have the feeling that everybody's selling those tokens. So the price goes up, it goes down substantially because the offering goes up so high. And now he wants to return the money. And the specific lender, where is he checking? He's only checking those two places, right? For those two places now, 
you need to return substantially lower amount of money because now the value has deteriorated substantially. So this is a complicated market manipulation, a very interesting one, but it is a cyber attack, right? In the sense that it's not classic cyber attack at all, but in DeFi, this is an attack. This is an abuse on the Oracle system. And the guy made a lot of money, right? He went away with hundreds of millions of dollars because he returned substantially less than what he was supposed to. Yeah, so that's market manipulation, definitely. And I, I don't see the cybersecurity element of that. I'm sure you can shed some light on that in a second, but let me back up a step here. And for these flash loans, what are the legitimate uses of getting a flash loan? And let's say you, you, you mentioned millions of dollars. Let's just say you do a flash loan of a million dollars for 10 seconds. Yeah. What is a legitimate use of that loan? I think a reasonable arbitrage of the market is helpful. Sometimes you take money, you put it in a liquidity pool, you get some tokens, you put them elsewhere. So smart people who know how the finance work can make money and actually make the market more efficient while they do it. So I'm not against those things. I think actually we need those players. If there's somehow a way for you to be moving money quickly within the market and making money while you do it, that means that there's something that is not working well. And by you doing this, you're going to be correcting the system. So that's, that's a good thing when it works well. I think to me, I'm, I went to the University of Chicago Law School. I, I wrote my PhD there and it's all about the efficient outcome, right? I mean, not my PhD. University of Chicago is all about, it's called law and economics, right? Always try to find the most efficient outcome. So to me, any act on the side of a player that is eventually leading to a more efficient outcome for the market is good. Okay. So I'm not against people making tons of money if they're doing something that is eventually helping the market to grow. But if you do something like this, this is not helping. I mean, yes, the only thing it's correcting is the fact that the developer here, and this is why it's considered a cybersecurity attack, because there's a mistake, a vulnerability in the code. The vulnerability in the code is that the person who wrote that code made a mistake of only relying on two places. Got you. Yeah. So this is why and, it's and because it's just two, it's easier. And if you tra- channel all your trades through those two, it's easier to manipulate two versus the whole market. Exactly. So the solution here is, and, and what are they contributing with this attack? The one thing they're contributing is, yes, this mistake will not happen again. He's going to fix the code. Everybody else will learn this lesson. And companies like myself will learn to identify those things. And auditors will look for it when they're auditing. So they are contributing some, but the damage is huge, right? So I think, I don't know, $400 million or $500 million were stolen that day. That's a big hit for the market. That's not the efficient outcome. There were other ways, for example, reporting this, this thing and getting like a bounty fee that would have been helpful and healthy for everybody. So how do you prevent these types of attacks slash manipulations? Yeah. So I think there are different ways to go about it. So for example, I gave the example of auditing this is one scenario where a lot of auditors should be sitting on all those smart contracts and fixing those bugs to begin with, right? But auditing will never be the solution because code will always have vulnerabilities and vulnerabilities will always be eventually exploited. We chose to do a 3D find, we chose endpoint protection. That means we look at it from the user side, specifically the business users. So hedge funds, family offices, DAOs, these are our customers. And the way for us to be preventing those things is again, very classic cybersecurity way of thinking. So we've been analyzing the attacks. They've been about 200 big and, and, and not very, very tiny, but smaller attacks in the past two years. We've been learning them really well. And we've been creating what we call signatures on the behavior. So you don't just get up one day and, you know, run a flash loan that goes to an attack of $400 million. This is actually a good example because this specific example, it could be very discouraging, right? If $400 million were stolen in 10 seconds, what can you do, right? But the truth is 
there's a lot to do because when we looked at that specific attack very closely, we found what we call breadcrumbs, right? Things that happened prior to the attack that are part of the preparation of the team. This is not even a person. This is a team that kind of planned this whole thing. We found those breadcrumbs as early as 330 days prior to this attack. So this is a year of preparation. So there's a lot to do in a year of preparation in terms of us looking for who are who is sending malicious transaction, what contracts are out there, who is preparing, what is going to be the outcome there, right? There's enough time to identify some of those things and let people know ahead of time. So you're saying you can identify those breadcrumbs ahead of time? So these are some, some type of leading indicator of, hey, they're, they're, they're prepping something here? Yeah. Yes. And not only that, some things repeat themselves. So sometimes we're not going to know what the vulnerability is, right? People will find different vulnerabilities to get in and, and, and start impacting a contract. And I know, I'm not sure how they're going to do it. By the way, it might be a Web 2 way in. So what's a Web 2 in, for example? They pretended to be interviewing one of the people who's working, who's maybe the person who holds the private keys, and they got him, they got him to write an email or send a resume, and then they kind of access his computer from afar, and they stole the, the private keys that hold the contract of this company. So far, Web2 attack, nothing that has to do with Web3. Basically, just breaking in a computer and stealing access, the information that gives you access. But now that they have this access, now they need to do things on Web3. And what we've been seeing that many attacks, no matter on how they started and no matter how you got your way in, certain things are bound to happen, right? You're going to be changing the ownership on the contract. You're going to be blocking certain things. Maybe you're going to be going to the process of minting tokens and start trying to excessively mint tokens because you need to make money out of it, right? And eventually there's certain ways to make money out of a smart contract. And so what we've been doing is we've been looking for those signs. So it's not only looking at the preparation and identify it ahead of time. This is a hard thing to do. But it's also even when this, when, when it kind of started already in a way, there's still time to do things because even an attack that started, it doesn't immediately show as the last thing, the last block that all the money is gone. There are things that are happening ahead of time. So for example, the firewall, which is our product that is now in the market, it's the first firewall in crypto. And what we do is for every transaction our users sign, we analyze the transaction. We run, we run a simulation. And we check what is going to happen if you're going to sign this transaction. And this could be a different answer if you sign it now or if you signed it 10 minutes ago, because maybe now there's an attack going on, right? So for example, we've seen attacks where somebody attack, again, it's sort of a web two attack. You attack the front end, you somehow got access to the website. And now mm-hmm. you're handing a malicious transaction for someone to sign in the sense that maybe you change, you change the spender. The spender is where the money goes. You changed one parameter in the smart contract. The only way to stop it is as we do it, every time someone signs a transaction, we're checking where the money is going, right? So if the money goes to someone's wallet, you don't even need really find. It's easy to, to see this is not going anywhere that is, is positive. You don't need to, there can be a situation where you're working with a smart contract, but the money is going to someone's wallet, but it's not so easy to identify sometimes. And then even if you know how to see if the money goes to a wallet, some of the attackers has gotten be- have gotten better. And now the money goes to a smart contract. It doesn't go to a wallet because it's easier to spot. It goes to a smart contract. But what is this smart contract? Is this a smart contract that is the usual way of business for this platform to move money there? Is this not? Maybe it's a new contract. Maybe it was uploaded yesterday. Maybe only five other people, you know, their money went there, but you're working with Uniswap. So this doesn't make any sense, right? So there are many things, many kind of, it's almost like an anti-fraud system when you raise certain flags and you say, this whole thing together doesn't make sense. Do not sign this transaction. 
Yeah, it sounds like a, a part anomaly detection combined yeah. with, like you said, the anti-fraud policies. If you have three out of four of these things occur, you're going to have to flag this transaction, something like that. Right. So the, this is exactly what we do for the transaction analysis. Yeah. Excellent. How common are these attacks? Like, I mean, is this happening daily, hourly, minute, every every minute? I mean, what what's the current status? So... It was it was on a daily basis when DeFi was at its height, right? There's this famous joke about the the bank robber when they ask him why are you robbing banks, and he said, "Because this That's is where, where the, the money, money is." is. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so when the money was in DeFi, we've seen it on a daily basis. Today we still see those a lot, but you see, and it's not as often. I feel like people have lost some of the appetite and their money waiting for the money to roll back. But the interesting to me, the more interesting are the more sophisticated attacks. So scams and phishing, you see all the time, more than once a day, you see like 10 a day. That always is out there. Any given moment, by the way, you can find 50,000 malicious tokens that are sold in Uniswap or any other any other reputable exchange. It's there. They're offering it and, and they're a scam. Uh, but the very sophisticated attacks that sometimes are even state-sponsored, by the way, these are, I don't want to say rare because they're still happening pretty often, but these are not on a daily basis. And these take months and months of preparation. So... And it's always interesting to get one. Sorry, I'm like, a, <laughs> I shouldn't be no, excited about those things. But but yeah, it's very, very interesting. I mean, it's always sad and it's not good for the space, but it's always very interesting to understand and to learn and to find new ways that people found. It's, it's, it's often brilliant. It's like playing a chess game and with some really, really smart people on the other end. So it's exciting. Are these bad actors ever getting caught? That's a good question. Some of them are, for example, in North Korea. I don't think they're getting caught anytime soon, right? Yeah. Um, but some of them will get caught if they, it really depends on their location. You can run a DeFi scam from anywhere in the world. So it's really, if you're going to be in a legitimate jurisdiction, once you make a mistake, you'll get caught. So I see oftentimes, and we see it all the time that money's sitting still, right? So we see attacks, money is stolen, but now they have a hard time getting the money out. And so everybody's eyes is on the money. There are a lot of places today where we see money that we know that is stolen money. And it's stuck. They can't move. As soon as they move to a network that is has a freeze option or has a way to take their money that is not very decentralized, the money will be taken. So they're not going there. If they have access, usually if they live in a reasonable place and they will go to any exchange or something trying to get their money out within using KYC and stuff, they're going to get also in trouble. So they're trying to either sit on the money for a while or slowly, slowly trying to spread it and move it in much, much smaller pieces that are harder to track. So as much fun as it is to steal $400 million or $500 million, it's not so easy to eventually lay your hands on it. And there are companies like Chainalysis, for example, that this is their specialty, right? Watching over the money, tracing it back, hopefully returning some of it to their owners, and then sometime on a happy flow, catching the people responsible. Say, say the name of that company again, please. Chainalysis. Oh, chain analysis. Got you. Yeah. Well, let me, let me kind of switch tracks here for a second. I, I, I think when I looked at your website that you guys have achieved the SOC 2 certification. Right. We have. Yeah. Let me ask you, is that more from to satisfy the requirements of your customers or does SOC 2, does it actually provide any kind of best practices or guidance or relevance to cybersecurity in the context of DeFi? So I think we did because it's a very web two thing to have, right? We are aiming to traditional financial institutions that are either sitting on the fence and haven't entered yet or are already active in some level in crypto. 
in addition to all the other organizations that are more crypto-natives, we have a lot of DAOs that are users and so on. I think for the more traditional institutions, SOC 2 is going to be important because at the end of the day, using Redefine, because we chose to be centralized, we're not decentralized, right? That means we have access to the information of our customers, and that means we have to be trustworthy and we have to prove that we're trustworthy. So we have very good investors to show that. We have customers who trust us. SOC 2 is another way for us to kind of signal our customers, you can rely on us. If we were fully decentralized, this may not have been needed at all, but then you have other issues. Exactly like I told you about the heist movie, right? If a security company is decentralized and everything is open and everything is verified. So yeah, as a customer, you have access to all the information, but also all the attackers have access to all the information. That's not a very good anti-fraud system if you tell upfront to everybody what are the things you're looking for. And so we chose to be centralized for that. And I think being centralized in this environment requires you to have other ways to prove that you are trustworthy. And this is what we're doing. Having said all that, I'll confess that as a startup and a new company, it helped us. So SOC 2 forced us to do certain things that we probably would not have done. I don't think it's huge in terms of cybersecurity because that we had in place because of our background, that wasn't an issue. So from, from very early on, we knew how to separate information of a customer from their wallet information, from any other systems and spreading the information sitting on different clouds. So even if there is some compromise, we're not going to be in trouble. But little things that we were not doing, just really even, I don't know, just basic HR. If an employee is now leaving the company to make sure he doesn't have access to anything. And the fact that every time we have a meeting, we need to have a protocol and have it for the protocol. Those are small things, but I think it did help us just to become, to grow and become a more like a healthy organization, right? And I think SOC2 actually helped us there. Excellent. Thank you for that. What can you say about general trends in crypto that that excite you or that interest you? I, I always like to mention account obstruction because I think to me, this is the coolest thing out there right now. So that means, you know, DeFi and, and just Web3 even in general, the fact that the, there's so many options, it's just, it's so exciting and so nascent is because it's based on smart contract, meaning everybody can, it's permissionless, right? Everybody can write a code, everybody, whatever you can imagine, you can write the code and then you can make it happen and it's open for everybody. So you see all those exciting things happening all the time, but custody up until recently was not a smart contract. Custody was very, very rigid. And, and the reason is clear because custody, it's the most dangerous thing and everybody wants to protect it. So it, it became, well, it started something very, very basic where you have zero flexibility. All you can do, you know, as a wallet is just sign a transaction and that's it. And nobody wanted to give any more options because it was very dangerous. Now account abstractions, account abstraction allows us to treat custody in a way as a smart contract, right? So that means now that it opens the door to all this creativity to come also to the world of custody. So for example, it's not just you now holding the money and signing transaction and that's it. And you lost your keys. It's over, right? That was, that was the way it was. And that's a bit crazy, right? So yeah. now you can have other things. You can do something like, what if I don't use my keys for six months? I would want all the money to, to, or the, or the keys of my brother to now work, right? You can, put this order there, or I would want to have a company be able to charge me up to a certain amount on a monthly basis and get it from my custody and sign for that transaction. So this is good for if in the future, we're going to have, you see like utility bills in crypto. So that's going to be helping there. 
you can have, I've even seen this company that is now doing wills, right? So what mm -hmm. if you die and now you want the money or the custody to now go to your grandson, right? So now his kids will work under certain circumstances. These are just random examples. The beautiful thing is that there is no closed list because now it's a smart contract. Everything can happen, right? Anything you mm -hmm. can imagine, you can write. So it's probably not even the most exciting examples that I'm giving you. The most exciting things will probably still to come. But the fact is that you get full flexibility now on the custody. And I, when I yeah. saw it first, I said, it reminds me of when, when I was a kid and I had a CD player and I was very excited about it, but all I could do, I have like five buttons, right? I can play, I can pause, I can fast forward, whatever. Those are the things. And then suddenly when Apple came with iTunes and whoa, now you can have all those things. And now with Spotify, right? So this is, this is the kind of, I think that the jump that we're going to see, right? The different league of options in custody we're going to be seeing because of account obstruction. I think that's a fascinating development, definitely. And it takes not, I guess... It, it takes some of the risk away from like, for example, if you lose your keys or it just gives you a lot more flexibility in terms of what, what the, the, the different outcomes can be. Well, I think it's going to, it's going to lead to mass, mass adoption eventually, because I think custody has been the main problem in, in crypto. And I think this mm -hmm. can solve it. When you talk about mass adoption, first off, define that. And, and, and when are we going to get there in terms of crypto being used on a daily basis for people, just normal people? I wish I'd known the answer for that. Right? <laughs> First of all, I could then be either more or less careful with my money in terms of how much of a runway I need to keep. When is the market going to happen, right? To me, mass adoption is getting Wall Street in. This is, this is what okay. I'm, I'm looking for. And by the way, this is an interesting evolution for me because when I started getting excited about crypto, it was in a very coming out, uh, like, part of joining a revolution that is no more banks and let's do everything different. And now I'm trying to get Wall Street in, right? So clearly I also went through some evolution myself. And I feel like a few years ago, the banks were like worried and like, how are we getting rid of it? How are we making sure this is not going to happen? This is scary and threatening. And, and we were like, how are we getting rid of banks and starting our own economy? And today, I think everybody changed a bit and banks are, how am I getting in there, right? How am I going to get more into digital, just the digital world and, and, and get into blockchain more and, and start my own like expertise there. And we are like, how are we going to get those Wall Street institutions? And when, when will the SEC help us there with some better ideas and better decisions? And so I think to me, mass adoption will come when this will happen. And I can't tell you, is it going to be two years? Is it going to be four years? If it's going to be 10 years, I don't know if I can last that long and wait, right? So I hope it's going to be before. So we're not there. You mentioned Wall Street, but what about governments? Because, I mean, different governments around the world are taking di very different postures in terms of whether they promote or want to steer their constituents away from cryptocurrencies or they want to roll out a state-sponsored digital currency. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of the state-sponsored digital currency. I think mm. it really undermines the whole idea. So I'm not, mm -hmm. I'm not excited about it. You don't, you don't trust the government? I'm <laughs> Listen, I feel like if you're in crypto, I think most chances are you probably don't. You probably have a healthy kind of skepticism exactly. related to the government. Yes. Yeah. Yes. No, but I think also you have a reason why you're doing this. And for me, yeah. when I see my employees, for example, or even my investors, 
So for example, I have a lot of employees that are from Russian descent. And I think it's because it's very easy for them to understand what we're doing. It's very intuitive for them to understand. I remember we were interviewing employees at the time, at the boom time, right? Where it was almost impossible to hire, theoretically speaking, right? Because in Israel, right. everybody was hiring and and people kept asking me, how are you finding developers? What are you doing to seduce them to come to your company? And I'm like, I don't need to do anything because the people that I want are the people that are going to come regardless. I don't need to promise mm -hmm. them any special 50 flavors of ice cream in the office or something like that. The people Pay that them in Bitcoin. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, I had an interview once, I remember, with a, with a Russian descent employee. He's, he came to Israel two years prior to that. And my co-founder were sitting with him, two tech people sitting about the code and explaining the technology. And I just interrupted and they said, Yuri, we're going to go to where the power is centered and we're going to distribute it to the people. And the guy quit his job that day, right? And joined us. So I feel like people who come from similar, from certain backgrounds, they just understand it intuitively. One of my investors today is like this super famous Silicon Valley investor, but originally he's from Venezuela. And one of the stories I like about him is that for his bar mitzvah, he told the guests that he's not getting Bolivard. He wants dollars. So at 13, he already understood that the money is worthless, that the local money is worthless and he cannot rely on it as a kid. It's pretty amazing. And I think that's why he's investing <laughs> in fintech and in crypto, because he understands that need, this needs to be changed. Those dollars are losing value at about 10% yeah. a year. So that's, hopefully he's got that money to crypto. So. <laughs> that, that's true today. But I think at the time for a kid looking at his, his options, they're definitely much better. And for me, I, I'll, I'll share something personal with you. But I, I grew up in Israel and, 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 and I lived in, in the US for many years. So I've only seen firsthand very stable financial systems, both Israel and the US. I don't have any complaints. They're doing great. However, I grew up in a house that are Holocaust survivors. And even though I always heard that the terrible stories about the Holocaust were not about money, it was mostly about the people that are gone. But I did hear between the, the, the things that I heard, you could read between the lines and, and I, I could hear also the financial story there. So my family had they were, they were wealthy, they had a business, and suddenly they passed a law. The Jews are not allowed to hold a business, to be owners of the business. So suddenly you can't own your own business. What are you going to do? And then their bank account access was taken, and then their biggest asset, which was a house on the main street, was taken, and they had to move to the ghetto with share an apartment with five other families. And so it deteriorated in terms of your access to money at the time where you need money the most. Because this sure. is a dangerous time and all you can do is try to save your family with, with, with money and suddenly you're hungry and suddenly all those things happen. And so it occurred simultaneously when at the time you needed it the most, you were more and more blocked and got lost access to your, to your own money. And so my grandfather, who was just, I guess he was an entrepreneur, but he saw this, he understood this and he liquidated himself pretty early on. And so the rest of the world, he, he exchanged whatever he had and, the, and, and he, he had, diamonds and jewelries and, and gold watches and whatever he had. And he spent years trying to protect his family with those things, paying people with those things, getting money this way. And they ran away at some point, but he had, he built something in his house, like a, a place where he hid gold throughout the war. And when the war was ended, it ended terribly. And his son was taken to Auschwitz and murdered when he was 12. But when he came back home after the war, there were Nazis living in his house. He was not going to get his house back. He knew that. He knew that he was going to knock on the door. They're going to kill him. So he waited for them to be out, outside the house. He still had his keys. He found the, sta the stash that they didn't find. And he, he went to Israel 
not as a refugee, financially speaking, but as an immigrant in that sense. And I mean, it's still terribly sad. And he spoke no Hebrew and he lost his family. It was, it was, it wasn't easy, right? But when I saw Bitcoin for the first time, I immediately thought, what if he had crypto, right? What would he have done right. differently? And, and all the people who never escaped because they were sitting on income and they didn't know how they're going to feed their children if they leave, what if they had crypto? And you look at it today also. The world hasn't changed, unfortunately. You look at Russia, you look at the Ukraine. Crypto is needed. Those things are important. Yeah, I and, totally and agree I with you. That's uh, why government coins. Sorry to answer. Yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> I, I, it, first off, thank you for sharing that story. And I mean, it's it's... It's sad, all the, 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 the things that humans do to each other. And I agree with you to some extent that crypto could solve part of that problem in terms of being able to protect our wealth. It's just, just about being financially, truly independent, right? To be able to yeah. be out the door when needed and not be financially dependent on anybody else. So I guess that's my post-trauma speaking, but this, this is how I see crypto. Let me ask you one more question on this topic, and then I, and I, and I want to switch to a couple other things, and then we'll, we'll wrap this up. But in terms of one of the gripes against crypto, and, and this is coming from the government side oftentimes, is that it's oftentimes or mostly used by gangsters, criminals, terrorists, because it's a way for them to transact business without going through the traditional banks and so on and so forth. What's your sense in terms of how how... I guess, legitimate that argument is. And what would you say is the percentage of good actors versus bad actors transacting business using crypto? Yeah, that's a good question. And I get it a lot, usually from angry people. But, but here's <laughs> I'm the not thing. angry. <laughs> no, I know, I know. Usually it's a different term when, when it's asked. Yeah. Here's the thing. I don't think technology is either good or bad. Technology is neutral and it gives you options. What do you do with it? Now, this is a different question, right? So I think crypto has amazing use cases, but yes, it's also helpful, I guess, for criminals and for pedophiles and for other people that we don't want, obviously, to enjoy this technology, but it does give them solutions to certain things. Let's not make the mistake of traceability. Crypto is traceable. It's even more traceable than cash. So in that sense, I think it's just a matter of governments getting their act together and working better, and then this will be solved in that sense. It is true, though, that it's harder to put your hands on the money when it's held right in crypto, because it's not in a bank when you can just show up with a warrant. However, I don't think this needs, this is not how we need to judge the, the technology. So I always, I always ask people when they ask me this, do you know how much crime is done using dollars? Or do you know how much crime is done, by the way, using WhatsApp? Yes, it's encrypted end to end. Do you know how many terror attacks are being planned? Is it good that it's encrypted and nobody can read? But what's the alternative? Do you want everybody to read your messages? That's not also a good solution. So if you ask me about the percentage between good citizens and then malicious actors, yes, I don't think today it's a good percentage. I think, unfortunately, criminals are early adopters and they're good with that when they find a way. I think the solution will be for more good citizens to enter, for more things to become like the standard. So certain behaviors and transparency about things and the way you handle things and policies in place and even some rules about identity and how KYCs and other things should be put in place in order to solve this. This is still a much, much better technology than the way we do today. The fact that we even transfer money in systems that have been designed in the 70s is insane for, for our generation. So I think you shouldn't judge the technology based on some of the users. You should use it in a better way and find solutions for the bad actors. Makes a lot of sense. And I've spent 
off and on about 25 years living overseas and having to deal with different, at different times in different places, different controls and paying foreign exchange or currency rates and premiums. And you just realize how inefficient, inefficient the banks can be or how when they have a lock or monopoly on a specific type of transaction, how much you are at the mercy or at their mercy in terms of what you can do and how much it's going to cost you. So I think it's amazing the leverage that this has placed against the traditional financial services industries in terms of forcing them to either innovate or lose a big chunk of their business. So I'm, I'm totally with you. Let me ask you just a couple more questions. AI is being talked about everywhere, all the time, all at once. What are the biggest applications for AI in the space of crypto? Yeah, super exciting. ChatGPT is officially my best friend now. I don't do anything <laughs> without it. It's very funny. Also my best employee, I must say. So yeah, this is going to change everything in our lives. And also obviously in crypto. I've seen people trying to write smart contracts with it and so on. For me specifically, we look at it from a security point of view. We use AI for what we do. What we were talking about, that is the tracking of malicious behavior or the analysis of how come a certain player is acting differently than others. AI and machine learning is very helpful actually in identifying those things. So you, mm -hmm. we use it often, not so much in the transaction analysis, but in, on the monitoring side. So we're building now our monitoring tools. And about to release actually a POC to a small group of users that is giving them now information about monitoring. So when your money is already outside your wallet and is now sitting in a liquidity pool somewhere or crossing a bridge or you're staking a protocol, and now we just keep eyes on this situation and we want to see if there's something unusual in the behavior and the general behavior in the space. So this is where we use it. This is our secret sauce there. I think the most exciting thing, by the way, this is if I may answer, because that's, that's not exactly AI, but I'm just saying with it together, we're giving our automated tools for the first time. So we've been sitting on it for a while. So monitoring is all nice and well. We can give you a lot of information about where your money is and what is the situation. But sometimes monitoring can be very frustrating if we see something super dangerous that is about to happen in 10 seconds, right? So if you watch, if you watch the blockchain, that's one thing. You're looking at something that has already happened. But if you watch, and we do that in monitoring, if you watch the mempool, that means you're watching all the transactions that are entering, right? So they have been sent already, but they haven't happened yet. They haven't been mined yet. So in a way, you're looking at the future. There's a huge amount of transactions. So AI is definitely helpful in looking there as well. And you're looking at the future in the sense that this will happen. It will happen in, let's say, 10 seconds or 12 seconds or seven seconds, depending on what network you're, you're looking at. And so giving someone a notification saying, hey, you're going to be losing your money in 12 seconds, that's not good monitoring. That's very frustrating for customers. As we've seen, we ask them. So this is why we attach to the monitoring our what we call our DeFi Dome. It's an homage to Iron Dome, right? When the Israeli missile system, what do you do when it's really seconds left? You already have a missile headed your way and you have like literally three seconds to respond and you have to do something active to mitigate the risk. And so our automated response, so AI will be very helpful in the monitoring and identifying, but then regardless, we're going to have our automated response triggered on certain situations. And so I'll give you an example. What if, if you're a customer and of course you need to kind of sign up in advance and agree on everything and give us a specific transaction to use, but basically we'll be sending a transaction on your behalf in an automated way. So if we see, for example, in the mempool that somebody is now emptying your wallet, it could be you transacting, but you can tell us in advance, hey, when I'm transacting, that's okay. But if somebody's taking more than 80% of my wallet, 
I want it stopped. I don't want it to happen. We cannot stop a transaction from happening, right? If somebody else sends a transaction, obviously we have no control over that. It will happen. What we could do though, is when we identify this, and if you triggered, if you operated the DeFi domain advance, that means you've given us permission, a very specific permission wrapped in a smart contract to move your funds from your wallet A to your wallet B. So we have no access to wallet A. We have no access to wallet B. We're not non-custodian. We don't hold private keys or anything like that. But we do have a very specific permission to move your funds from one wallet to the other because one has been compromised. And so it's not enough, by the way, to move the money because you need to also what we call front run the attacker. You need to get there before the money's gone. So we need to identify the situation, run to the pool really fast, sit there and get the miner to take us before this transaction. So eventually at the block, we need to be at least one line ahead of the attacker. So the attacker will come and you will have the permission to empty the wallet. But if there's nothing left there, then his transaction will fail. So what you're saying is you have to automate in order to react in that kind of time. Absolutely. You have to automate it. And, and that's where AI or automation comes in. Makes makes a lot of sense. Last question. If you had to give tips, one tip to consumer investors in crypto or DeFi, and then one to institutional, it, it, it could be in the context of security or it could be just in in general. What would those tips be? So when I think of institutions or maybe considering entering Web3 or already active, I think of it this way. In crypto, the problem used to be, before DeFi, before smart contracts, the problem used to be custody. So first of all, you need to make sure you have good custody. That's the most important thing. However, since we have Web3 attacks now and since we have smart contracts, custody only protects 50%, and I did the math, 50% of the money that was stolen in the past three years had to do with custody issues. The other 50%, you cannot protect with custody. So if you think that you're just going to get an expensive secured custody and you're good, that's a big mistake and that could cost you. You need to be able to protect yourself fully if you are active on DeFi. So, I mean, if you're holding Bitcoins, you're good. Nobody can touch your Bitcoins. But if you are holding tokens or transacting or doing anything that is associated with a smart contract, you need to know that even if you have a smart and a good custody, you're only 50% covered, which for an institution is unacceptable, right? I feel like this is the really responsibility of an institution is to, to take all the precautions and to, and to make sure the money is safe. And so my advice is, first of all, definitely seek how to solve the other 50% because it's missing. And I think, I think also financial institutions, they know how to handle risk. They understand risk. They eat risk for breakfast. We're not going to teach them about how to handle risk. What we could do and what we're trying to do is, first of all, to give them visibility on the risk, which they don't have today in Web3. And also to give them the tools to handle those things. And these are tools that they're used to having. So an institutional investor who comes from traditional finance, they know what they're missing because they used to have all those things. And so I think they just need to, I don't even think they need to educate themselves. I think they just need to make the effort and take care of themselves. Just leave up to the responsibility that they have to their, to their LP providers, like liquidity providers, and make sure they are doing the extra mile, the extra 50% that is missing and protecting themselves end to end. Awesome. Well, I think that's some, some, some great advice. Hey, Shira, I, I've really enjoyed this conversation, learned a lot from you, and I would like to wish you just an amazing rest of the summer here. Thank you, Mark. I enjoyed it a lot too.